Smart, simple, seamless. Philips' new Intrasite Interventional Applications platform was designed for tomorrow, but it's here today. Intrasite delivers best-in-class imaging and physiology solutions with both co- and tri-registration tools on a new application-based platform. Ask your local Philips representative to demo Intrasite today. You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello, and welcome to the Heart Sounds podcast for April 2019. This is the podcast where I look back at some of the top cardiology stories of the past month, written by the TCTMD news team. Heart Sounds gives you the chance to listen in on some of the telephone or face-to-face interviews our reporters use to pull together their print stories. After a stormy news month for March, April has been blissfully calm. Several members of the team have been chipping away at feature stories that will be airing over the next few weeks and months. We've also had the chance to cover a broader range of journal news than we managed to get to last month when we were dashing from meeting to meeting. More of that is just around the corner. So for now, why don't we take a leisurely stroll through some of the more engaging conversations of the past month. I want to kick things off by talking about my takeaway blog from the ACC meeting, which, for a range of reasons, I didn't manage to pull together until the first week of April. As you'll no doubt recall, I spent much of the March edition of Heart Sounds talking about some of the big trials from ACC. But for my takeaway blog a week later, I circled back on what I think was a key unanswered question from the meeting. Namely, how the heck did we get another big embargo break involving a trial presented at the ACC meeting and published simultaneously in the New England Journal of Medicine? I have been a loyal slave to embargoes my entire tenure as a medical journalist. That's despite having been unfairly penalized once for a broken embargo that had nothing to do with me and my team. But never mind, I'm over it. But I have long wondered whether these embargo periods are really serving their purpose. The idea is that giving journalists a few days to review and digest scientific data and conduct their interviews, consult with other experts, and so on, will lead to better journalism. But if that model were the case, surely a lag time between presentation and publication of a scientific paper would also lead to a better paper. Anyhow, I heard from plenty of folks curious to know if I had more details on the Reuters embargo break at ACC, and you can find some answers in my takeaway blog. Find that by clicking on my name on the TCTMD site, since it's currently featured on my bio page. For now, have a listen to part of my interview with Martin Leon of New York Presbyterian Columbia University Irving Medical Center in New York. Dr. Leon was one of the PIs of Partner 3, which itself was one of two low-risk TAVR trials at the heart of the embargo break. He was also at the middle of one of the last embargo break brouhaha's involving the New England Journal of Medicine and the ACC back in 2007. I asked him if medical news embargoes still made sense in 2019. Well, we have to keep revisiting the policies. I think a decade ago we were concerned that some of the breaches and embargoes might have been initiated by uh, either physicians or by sponsors, and I think largely it was unintentional. But I think more likely what's happening now is that these breaches are occurring at a very different level, and they're, and they're becoming inevitable. With the advent of simultaneous publications at the same time as presentations, then you expose new data to ever-increasing audiences of people. And once that occurs, the likelihood of, of there being either an intentional or unintentional breach becomes inevitable. Uh, and this breach in particular was, you know, it was 
associated with the news service. I believe it was unintentional. I, I think there was a communication lapse. There was, you know, the story filed in India. There was a time difference. They misunderstood when the actual presentation was going to be. So I don't think it was intentional. But still, it it evoked a series of cascading events that, had it not been over a weekend, really could have threatened the, the entire process. Hmm. Um, uh, it is very possible that the presentation would have been withdrawn, and it is possible that there would have been uh, other, you know, very substantial repercussions. Over the last few years, we've heard more and more about the peculiar predicament of people who've experienced an MI in the absence of obstructive disease. It's confusing and frustrating for physicians and patients alike. Making the diagnosis is complicated, and treatment strategies are in their infancy. Earlier this month, the American Heart Association released a document outlining a standardized definition and clinical care algorithm to help clear up some of this confusion. According to the AHA, 5% to 6% of acute MI cases involve patients with no obstructive disease. They are typically less likely to have electrocardiographic ST-segment deviations and also have smaller degrees of troponin elevation compared with MI patients with obstructive CAD. Patients with MINOCA, as it's called, are typically younger and more often female, according to writing committee chair Jacqueline Tamis-Holland of Mount Sinai St. Luke's Hospital in New York. Yael Maxwell covered some of the highlights of this scientific statement for TCTMD, and it's worth seeking out the AHA document, published in circulation, to understand the different definitions, diagnostic steps, and treatment algorithms. To whet your appetite, here's Tamis Holland explaining why this document is so important. When I sort of asked around and asked other people, not just in my hospital, but outside, it just seems like the care is very, very depending on the place you're at and just sort of depending on the clinical acumen of the physician, the whole team in terms of what's causing things. And I, I kind of felt that it was important for us to bring to attention to the medical community and even to the patients the fact that there is a condition called Minoka, that it's widely known, you know, it, it happens, and that when this sort of situation happens, you need to look into what the underlying etiology is. One, so you can feed back to the patient and give them information about what happened to them. But two, because if you identify what the underlying problem is, you might be able to improve the outcome, you know, depending on what the underlying reason is. Right at the end of March, after the cutoff had passed for our Heart Sounds podcast last month, we finally got a look at the much-awaited and debated CMS proposal for TAVA reimbursement. This national coverage decision has been in the works for over a year and has drawn mixed opinions both for and against the need for hospitals and practitioners to maintain a certain volume of procedures while guaranteeing adequate access to care for all patients. The document ultimately relaxed some requirements but kept others in place. For hospitals wanting to start a TAVR program, for example, the bar has been set slightly lower. These hospitals must have performed at least 50 open-heart surgeries in the year prior to starting the TAVR program and at least 20 aortic valve-related procedures in the two years prior, among other requirements. For hospitals with existing TAVR programs, however, CMS now says that hospitals need to do at least 50 aortic valve replacements annually, either TAVR or SAVR, 
including at least 20 TAVR procedures in the year prior, or that they do at least 100 AVRs, again, TAVR or SAVR, within two years, and that needs to include 40 or more TAVR procedures in the two years prior. For both categories here, there are specific physician-level requirements as well. The new NCD is not yet finalized. CMS is now seeking public comments on their recommendations, which can be submitted through their website. CMS will post the final NCD no later than 60 days after the 30-day comment period closes. Michael O'Reardon covered the CMS proposed NCD for TCTMD and spoke to a range of people to get their reactions. One of those was Joseph Bavaria of Penn Medicine in Philadelphia. Bavaria co-chaired a recent update to a multi-society expert consensus statement on operator and institutional requirements for TAVR. The clip I'm going to play you is taken from different parts of his conversation with Mike, explaining some of the different concepts that need to be factored into the CMS decision-making. Take a listen. I think that CMS did a good job of kind of uh, navigating the issues regarding access, which re would require, obviously, a lot of programs, um, versus the known result that uh, the more you do, uh, the better you get, which is a kind of the volume outcome relationship. I think they did a good job of you know, navigating between those two competing problems because both of them are important. So that's good. There's two kind of volume concepts. The first volume concept is one about one regarding volume outcome relationship. In other words, is, is, there, a, is there a point where if you go below a certain volume that, you're, that the data can suggest that, that your quality, that quality will go down? Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's one data point, okay? That's, that's one concept regarding volume. And in that regard, CMS kind of, as I said before, walked that fine line between, you know, too much and too little. Um, and I think, they, I think they did a good job. But the second volume number that's really critical in this particular NCD is that there's a certain minimum volume threshold that you need so that you can actually measure quality. Okay, so this is a whole different concept. And... Um, if you, if you have no volume or very super low volume, you can't measure quality because statistically, anyway, the error bars are so great that there's no, you can't measure, can't, it's not real. You can't really measure whether it's real or not. So there is a, a certain number that is required for CMS to be able to, to mandate a, you know, a quality requirement. A team of researchers from the Platinum Diversity and Promise Element Plus post-approval studies have been doing a range of prospectively planned analyses, trying to understand how women and minorities fare following DES implantation. As you've heard me say before, men typically make up the bulk of patients studied in trials that lead to regulatory approval of drugs and devices in cardiovascular disease. For that reason, checking that the interventions work well across the board is a worthy if understudied endeavor. This month, Roxana Moran of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York and her co-authors report one-year MACE results for the nearly 1,900 female patients who participated in these studies and received an Everolimus eluding stent. Adjusted for differences in medical history, lesion characteristics, and procedural factors, the risk of one-year MACE, that is, death, MI, or TVR, was similar for female African-American and white patients and for Hispanic, Latina, and white patients. But for African-American women in particular, the risk of MI was sharply elevated at one year compared with white women, as was the risk of TVR. 
This was despite the fact that they maintained dual antiplatelet therapy just as consistently. Caitlin Cox covered this paper for TCTMD and interviewed senior author Wayne Batchelor of the Inova Heart and Vascular Institute in Falls Church, Virginia. He helped put the project and its findings in context and walks us through the outstanding questions. We need to do a deeper dive into the interaction between race, ethnicity, gender, and risk factors to understand the full impact of these um, characteristics on outcome. And we have to dovetail into that discussion social de determinants of health, uh, because the, the way that we've been looking at this historically, we, we just sort of chunked people into categories based on things like are they diabetic or not, do they have uh, established Framingham risk factors or not, mm. and we kind of look at outcomes in that way. And the reality is there are other risk factors that we're probably missing as it relates to how patients fare after interventions, including coronary stent interventions, even in the modern era. Really what this does to me is it just opens up a whole other venue for uh, research questions and provides a lot of impetus for us to study biological, social, and clinical and angiographic underpinnings for the findings that we're seeing. Uh, for example, um, there's a threefold difference in adjusted uh, myocardial infarction in African-American women. This is something that's completely gone under the radar screen because we've never looked at them. They're a group of we've really never studied. African-American women, if we've done studies, they've always been African-Americans, men and women dominated by men. And if we've done studies on women, they've been predominantly uh, Caucasian women. There's almost this interesting double whammy of being minority and female that seems to provide incremental risk, at least in terms of myocardial infarction. The question is, is there something biologically going on that we have, uh, we're just scratching the surface of, or is it just all explained by things that we're already aware of, for example, social demographics, access to care, comorbidities like diabetes, and other comorbidities which seem to penetrate certain races more than others. We tend to hear more hype than hard data for the use of smart technology and wearables in the management of cardiovascular disease. Last month, the Apple Watch made international news with the first large-scale study that used the device to warn patients of irregular heart rhythms. This month, Laura McEwen covered a study looking at acute MI patients who, before they left the hospital, were taught to use an Apple Watch in tandem with a smartphone and a Bluetooth blood pressure cuff to track their care. Francoise Marvel of Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore led the study and presented the results at the AHA's Quality of Care and Outcomes Research 2019 Scientific Sessions at the beginning of April. For the study, investigators taught study participants to use the different devices paired with a mobile app named Cori and compared rates of all-cause readmissions with those of patients who were not taught to use these digital tools. Not only were hospital readmissions significantly reduced among those using the digital toolkit, as we called it, in combination with the app, costs were lowered by as much as $6,000 per patient. Those savings were driven by better compliance with medications and fewer hospital visits. To TCTMD, Marvel stressed that a key reason for the study's success was training patients to use the different digital tools before leaving the hospital. Joseph Ebinger of Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, who moderated the session at the QCOR 2019 meeting, agreed. Have a listen to part of his conversation with Laura. It's kind of foolish of us to think that, those are the, that these individuals who beforehand 
had no concept of the care they wanted taking care of their cardiovascular health are now going to be able to manage that all on their own. And I think that these sort of tools are really helpful in helping them bridge that gap from being in you know very acute, uh, high care intensity location to one where they're at home and left to manage just on their own. So I certainly think it's a great option for, for patients who are making that transition. Getting everybody organized and on the same page when it comes to treating cardiogenic shock in patients with acute MI or acute decompensated heart failure isn't easy. But according to research Todd Neal covered this month, implementing a multidisciplinary shock team can have a major impact on patient outcomes. A few years ago, clinicians at Innova Heart and Vascular Institute in Falls Church took a fresh look at what might be done to improve cardiogenic shock survival in their system, which lingered around 50% in 2016. That is a bleak number pretty familiar to folks tracking survival rates at their centers and in randomized trials. The Innova Heart and Vascular researchers identified four areas that could be improved. Early recognition of shock, speed of care, access to physicians with needed expertise, and variations in care. They then formed a task force to develop strategies for each of those areas, which ultimately led to the formation of a shock team tapping into representatives from interventional cardiology, cardiac surgery, advanced heart failure, and critical care, which could be activated with a single call. They also developed an easy-to-use algorithm to standardize care. Within a year of putting their plan in action, 30-day survival among patients with cardiogenic shock had risen to 58%. Within 18 months, survival rates had reached 77%. Bainham Tarani and colleagues report their findings April 9th in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. Tarani also spoke with Todd about what he hopes the impact of this study might be. Having this team-based approach is critically important. Through that, we were able to identify four really important opportunities for improvement. But I think what we would like for this paper to serve as is to serve as a roadmap, if possible, for uh, other centers around the country to develop their own uh, protocols and algorithms to take care of these patients. But ultimately, as that happens, we start to share data. And when I say share data, I mean share meaningful data. And then hopefully that can then serve as a blueprint for pragmatic trials coming down the road you know, using current and possible, you know, any future therapies that may be available. And then that ultimately would help to inform clinical guidelines. I think as physicians and healthcare providers, you know, that's what we always look to to help guide us is uh, guidelines. And I think right now in, in the field of cardiogenic shock, that doesn't exist. What we would like is for, you know, people when they read this article to develop their own questions, their own thoughts, their own algorithms and teams to provide care for these patients and ultimately through a dissemination of these processes, then and then only then can we then crystallize trial designs and pragmatic uh, models of clinical trials that could then you know, form the basis for clinical guidelines. That's all we've got for the April edition of Heart Sounds. We are gearing up for a very busy month of meetings in May. Todd Neal will once again be covering the Heart Rhythm Society meeting in Boston, May 4th to 7th. Yael Maxwell will ship out to Las Vegas for Sky a few weeks later. The EuroPCR meeting kicks off in Paris on May 21st, followed by the European Heart Failure Congress and the European Atherosclerosis Society meeting, all before the end of the month. We've got you covered news-wise for all of these conferences, but it's hard to keep on top of everything. 
If you are presenting something at any of these meetings or have other tips, be sure to drop me a line. And if you're not attending these meetings, you'll want to check out the TCTMD homepage most days of the week to see new research coming out of all of these conferences. You can also sign up for our news newsletter, which will keep you up to speed. Find the sign up button at the bottom of the homepage or follow TCTMD on Twitter for all the headlines. You can find yours truly on Twitter as Shelley Wood too. I know, I know, I keep tweeting news about my novel these days because it came out last month and has nothing to do with heart disease. But come on, you can't fault me for a little of that, can you? Thank you for tuning in to the Heart Sounds podcast. I'll be passing the mic to TCTMD news editor Caitlin Cox, who is guest hosting the show next month. Be sure to listen in. Bye for now.